This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. I like a bed that's really firm. I need something a little softer than that. Rest easy. With the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed, you can both adjust your comfort with your Sleep Number setting. Can it really help me fall asleep faster? Yes, by gently warming your feet. Okay, but can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. Sleep Number, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. It's our biggest sale of the year where all beds are on sale. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Way I See It. I'm Alastair Souk, your guide in this 30-part series in which we're throwing open the collection at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, to some of the sharpest artistic and creative minds of our time. Each guest gets to choose a single artwork that thrills or surprises or inspires them, and they've been telling us why they see it the way they do. And here's the guest of this episode going about her day job. Renee Fleming is an internationally acclaimed American opera singer, a soprano superstar no less, but as well as definitive operatic roles, she's known for performing in musicals and films. Recently, she sung on the soundtrack of Guillermo del Toro's Oscar-winning The Shape of Water. Plus, to date, Fleming is the only classical singer who has ever sung the national anthem at the Super Bowl the grandest of grand occasions in America's sporting calendar. And it turns out she's passionate about visual art as well as music. I'm not sure if she's ever sung in MoMA's galleries, but she knows them well enough. Oh, I love MoMA. That's really been my go-to museum in New York. And it is the museum that enabled me to entice my children to love the visual arts. So for, for that, I am very grateful. And the work that René wants to talk about is an imposing oil painting measuring almost eight feet by eight, titled Colours for a Large Wall. It consists of 64 abutting squares, each painted a single hue, randomly arranged in an eight-by-eight eight grid, like a gigantic multicoloured chessboard. And it was painted in 1951 by the abstract American artist Ellsworth Kelly, who died in 2015 at the age of 92. But at the time, as we'll hear later, he was just a penniless nobody who still knew from the off that his painting was destined to hang on the walls of the Museum of Modern Art. Very ballsy. Well, he did once say that his distinctive use of bright colour at full intensity never changed over 60 years of painting. It does sort of suggest the counterpoint of music. It does have that suggestion of pattern. A lot of music would definitely correlate to Ellsworth Kelly's work. Now, even though she's no longer singing full-time, Renee is still one seriously busy lady, so she spoke to me from a studio in Washington, D.C., where many moons ago she actually met Kelly, who swiftly became a friend as well as an artist she admired. 
Well, I met Ellsworth Kelly literally on a staircase at the White House in Washington. As one does. As one does. And he turned around. He recognized me because I had performed in something, and we just struck up a conversation. And he, what a delightful human being, just an exuberant joy. We became fast friends. We shared this love of the color yellow for instance. So I really developed not only a friendship with Ellsworth, but I became a tremendous fan. And Colors for a Large Wall brings so many of these ideas together in one painting. It's interesting that you say that because whilst you were talking, I'm looking at my end in London in this studio at my laptop and there's a JPEG, I guess, of Colours for a Large Wall. Now I can see what I think look like, unless they've been distorted, the colours, at least two blocks of yellow within this big grid of colourful squares. Not all colourful, some black and some white. But there are many other colours too. It's interesting because it looks sort of pointless in the sense that there are these small squares seemingly randomly arranged. This canvas, of course, which is quite large, I mean, I think it's eight feet tall, has also a lot of white space. But they're also clearly designed to be the same type and size of square. And the black as well. And this type of work is mesmerizing because you can choose so many different pieces of it to focus on. You can certainly the yellow pops. There are only two squares that are yellow and it really pops. But you can also look at the shapes that are created if you focus on certain colors. I love looking at this. It brings me a lot of joy. The thing that blows my mind about colors for a large wall is its date. Because it was painted in 1951, the year Kelly turned just 28 a full decade before the emergence of various other modern art movements, which art historians believe it prefigures. Kelly's eye-popping yellow does seem to anticipate the colours of 60s pop art, and the quasi-mechanical grid of monochrome squares in colours for a large wall, that also throws forwards, in this case to minimalism. When Kelly made the painting, he was in Paris, funded by a grant he'd received via the so-called GI Bill, for which he was eligible, having served during the Second World War in the US Army's camouflage unit, known as the Ghost Army. Kelly knocked around the city for nearly six years, where he said he was in thrall to the play of sunlight across the Seine that he observed from his lodgings on the Ile Saint-Louis. It's tempting to think of colours for a large wall as an abstraction of flickering light on the river's surface. In Paris, Kelly rubbed shoulders with avant-garde figures like the radical composer and philosopher John Cage, who was, by chance, a fellow guest in his hotel. In fact, the role that chance, an obsession of Cage's, might play in art deeply fascinated Kelly. And according to MoMA's chief curator of painting and sculpture, Anne Temkin, Chance played a starring role in the genesis of Colours for a Large Wall. When Kelly was in Paris, he began working on collages with little squares of coloured paper that you could buy in an art supply store. And then when he was done with those collages, he had a certain amount of leftover squares. Then in November 1951, he went down for a bit of a holiday in the south of France and he brought with him the leftover squares from that whole series of collages. What you see in this painting are those leftover squares. I've got to ask, though, Anne, because you imagine him placing the squares down and creating the grid and almost where they fall, 
But he might then say, that red, if I just move it one square to the left, I think it will enhance the composition, and no one will know. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) The fact that he stayed with this way of seeing, way of thinking throughout his career, to me suggests an extraordinary ability to stay with one idea. And composers, for instance, when we talk about music and we talk about what makes a composer stand out, one of the most important elements is originality. There's a famous 19th century British writer-critic, Walter Pater, mm-hmm. and his famous quote was that all art aspires to the condition of music. Very smart guy. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm kidding. How yeah. do you feel when you're looking specifically at this work? I mean, do you sense musical qualities within it at all? Well, music's looking for pattern very often. Our brains actually react to music and pick up on patterns that we're not even aware of, that that is completely subconscious. And then we, we look for them again. I'm sure sight works in the same manner. So in looking at this work, for instance, I am trying to find automatically a pattern. And there is no easy pattern to find, but the elements of the piece which have to do with shape and color, intrigue us and ask us to stand and really consider the choices that were made. The same is true of music. If it's too repetitive, it ceases to be interesting. But if there's an element of surprise, if there are things that occur in music that we don't expect, that makes a huge difference and that really intrigues us and it is hugely satisfying. Even looking at the image on my computer, You've got that tension, haven't you, between the order, the rational geometry of a grid, all of these blocks, and then what you're describing as the dissonance as he's playing and riffing with where the colours go, whether they're there selected carefully or by chance. Or But there's a sense of something constantly evolving and shifting and coming forward and receding before our eyes. Exactly. And really, we can choose how to focus. I can actually look at this and say, I'm just going to really focus on the black. And and look at the different tonalities in the black. If the black is over blue, it's quite different than if it's over white. It becomes fascinating to just sit with this particular piece and make those choices ourselves. What would we want to focus on if we were looking at color and form? Well, I've come to the museum where colors for a large wall now hangs, and I'm walking towards it. And the idea of what you should focus on, well, there's one thing I'd like to focus on, which is that it's massive. This is a really substantial work of art, dominating a wall, an end wall in the gallery, without any other works around it. And if I... Let's go up. Because when you come up really close, you realise that these are individual square canvases. Each of these is its own wooden stretcher, which, by the way, he had a cabinet maker from whom he lived upstairs make... 64 of these foot-by-foot wooden stretchers on which he then stretched a canvas. The reason he went for that 64-square approach was because he was unable to store a painting 8-by-8-foot wide. And at that point, 1951, an 8-foot wide by 8-foot tall painting was a big commitment to transport. So this way it was able to be disassembled, reassembled, and that was what he could afford. I love that. Kelly, the inadvertent pioneer, not only of pop and minimalist, but also flat-pack art. You can imagine that when he first started doing these pieces, as you said, the early 50s, that it must have just seemed 
ridiculous to other people. What is this? I mean, my children could do this. The fact that he stuck with this and that he, you understood eventually that this commitment to form and color carries its own power, and there was no compromise. And Kelly was very clear in his mind when he started to do this, saying, if I am going to be a grand artist, I need to do something explicitly monumental. And Temkin. He had in his head, so he later said, that this would be a painting for the Museum of Modern Art. Now, here's a nobody, essentially, a penniless nobody, and he made this work that he knew what he had, even if barely anybody else in the world did. He didn't just see the piece as a flat canvas. The piece's relationship to shadow and light in the space that it is hung was equally important. Of course, once having that explanation, now I can't see any of his work without seeing the environment and and noticing what effect it has. And, And is it different if I stand to the right or to the left or further back or further forward? And what about the time of day? And how is the light changing? It's a wonderful opportunity for us as the viewer to inhabit fewer elements in terms of experiencing an artwork. There's this line that Matisse used to say, which is, a small patch of colour is far less intense than a large one of the same colour. That is what has hit me so hard between the eyes and is exciting to see looking at the work in reality because I was fascinated talking to René and looking at a reproduction. But here it's the scale of the thing. Each of these colours compels attention. And of course she says you need to move around. It does make you want to walk back, try and take in the composition. And it, it, does, it does have this feel. I think that's what is coming across to me as well. There's a real sense of movement to this work of art. Clearly, music thrills the emotions in ways that other art forms perhaps don't. And you've been talking a lot about the rigour to this piece, the intent, and you're analysing it and dissecting it. But I wonder whether it has an emotional effect on you when you look on it, what sort of emotions you feel. You know, I, I can't separate that from my friendship with Ellsworth. You know, I think everybody who knew him well misses him insofar as he was happy to see you that made your day. You know, I just think of him and I feel joy. I mean, I feel yellow. You know, to me, Ellsworth is yellow. I mean, that bright, sunny, joyful color. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes like this, just search for The Way I See It on BBC Sounds. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. From the Manhattan to the Martini to the Negroni, cocktails and spirits have never been more popular than they are today. I'm Noah Rothbaum, the Daily Beast Half Full Editor. And I'm David Wandrich, the Daily Beast Senior Drinks Columnist. And we're the hosts of the podcast Life Behind Bars, which won the 2018 Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Award for the world's best drinks podcast. Yes, we do get paid to drink for a living. So shake up a drink and join us for a mix of engaging stories and historical facts about the greatest bartenders and the greatest drinks of all time. Cheers. Cheers. Acast is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.